Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Made it to the final play in the Oresteia, Aeschylus's The Eumenides, or Law and Order, Athens. As with the rest of the Oresteia, I used the Lattimore translation. Like the rest of the trilogy, the Humanities premiered in 458 BCE and won first prize at Dionysia. You'll recall that we last left our hero, Orestes, fleeing from the Unseen Furies. The Furies are one of two homogenous choruses in this play. The other homogenous chorus is made up of Athenian women. Unlike the prior two plays, the scene shifts in this play from Delphi to Athens. It begins at Delphi, where the famous oracle, or Pythia, lived. She is a priestess of Apollo, who is a catalyst for much of the action in the play. Clytemnestra's ghost appears to urge the Furies to avenge her death. And once the action has moved to Athens, we meet Athena and that second homogenous chorus. This comprises all of the people who talk or sing in this play. There are also a few people who don't, the most notable of this second group being Hermes, the god responsible for safe travel. know this pretty well by now. But as a quick refresher, we are looking for a prologue, parados, episodes and stasimons, and an exodus. The Humanities begins at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. The Pythia enters and recites prayers to Gaia and Apollo. She enters the temple and quickly returns because of what she has found inside. A young man, who we of course know as Orestes, sitting at the altar, covered in blood and holding a suppliant's wand. The rest of the temple is filled with furies, who are also asleep. The doors to the temple open so that the audience can see what the Pythia has seen. Apollo and Hermes have joined Orestes. Apollo tells Orestes that he, Apollo, will stand as guardian to him, Orestes. But he also says that Orestes will only get peace from the Furies if he goes to Athens. So, Orestes and Hermes head off to Athens, and Apollo goes back into his temple. Clytemnestra's ghost enters, and she is pissed because she's got the Furies sleeping on the job. The quote-unquote conversation she has with the sleeping Furies is reminiscent of the conversation she has with Cassandra and Agamemnon. She commands the sleeping Furies to wake up and do their job. They start to stir, and Clytemnestra is appeased enough to exit and lead them to it. The chorus wakes up. And if you think Clytemnestra's ghost was pissed, well, let's just say that the Furies are not very happy. You might even say that they are furious. And yes, they have technically been on stage this whole time, but we'll call this part the Parados because it really is their entrance song, given that they've been asleep. Anyway, they sing about how Apollo has wronged them by making them fall asleep when they should have been chasing Orestes. But now that they are awake, they can get back to what they were doing before they fell asleep. Before the Furies can get back to chasing Orestes, Apollo enters and tells them to leave his temple. Like, they weren't going to do that anyway, given the fact that Orestes is no longer there. Not exactly mansplaining. Is this an alternate definition of mandating? Anyway, the chorus tells Apollo that the whole thing is his fault because he's the one who told Orestes to kill Clytemnestra, and as you'll recall from the end of the libation bearers, matricide trumps meridicide. Yes, I had to look up the word for killing your husband. The Furies finally explain the difference and why the former is worse than the latter. If you kill your husband, it's uh, your normal sort of murder because the two of you, I hope, aren't related. But if you kill your mother, then you've killed your own flesh and blood, and that simply will not stand. Apollo insists that the murder was a justified revenge. The Furies insist it was a step too far. 
and they all head off to Athens, unable to resolve their differences. Chung chung. We now find ourselves in Athens, at the Parthenon, a.k.a. Athena's temple on the Acropolis, where Orestes claims himself as a suppliant at her altar. The chorus of Furies enters, having followed Orestes to Athens. They sing about how he must pay for Clytemnestra's death, blood for blood. Orestes tells them that Apollo has washed away the blood that is on his hands and calls upon Athena in her role as a goddess of wisdom to change the rules about justice and vengeance. The Furies insist that they are just in their actions because it has always been that way. They spend several stanzas on that theme. Athena enters. She had been near Troy, checking out the remnants from the Trojan War, and heard the cries from her temple in Athens, and now she wants to know what all the fuss is about. The Furies explain that they are chasing Orestes because he killed his mother. Athena notes that they have provided half of the argument and points out that right and righteousness are two different things. She asks Orestes for his side of the story. He gives it. You already know it. It was the first two plays in this trilogy. He also says that whatever she determines should be his fate, he will accept. Athena, being the goddess of wisdom, says that this is too big of a thing for any individual, human, or god to solve wisely. She decrees that there will be a trial by jury. The first trial by jury. Ever. Or at least ever as far as Greek mythology is concerned. And she exits to pick, pick the jury. The Furies sing about how this new trial by jury thing is going to overthrow the old order in which vengeance equals justice, which is also an overthrow of their power as goddesses. Athena enters with 12 Athenian citizens. Sound familiar? Like the number of people who sit on a jury today? Yes, this is the first jury. Apollo also enters to serve as the defense attorney. Athena, as the judge, tells the Furies to state their case. You might even call them the prosecutors. It's your basic trial. The prosecution asks questions. The accused testifies. The defense presents their argument. The question, of course, is not whether or not Orestes is guilty of murder. He fully acknowledges that. The question is whether or not he should be punished any further than he already has been. In her instructions to the jury, Athena explains the importance of what they are doing. The jury deliberates silently. We don't get to hear that discussion because they are non-speaking characters. Additional debate or discussion about the larger impact this trial will have. The jury brings back a verdict of, well, today we would say it's a hung jury. They're split, 50-50. Half think Orestes should be punished further, and half think he has been punished enough. Athena decrees that this means Orestes is not guilty, or punished enough. Orestes is free to go home without the stain of his actions hanging over his head. He leaves. The Furies, as befits their name, are pissed. Their power has been usurped by this Olympian upstart, and they are not going to take it lying down. Athena gets them to calm down long enough to offer them a temple of their own on the Acropolis. She does this in part by pointing out that she not only knows where Zeus keeps his thunderbolts, but she also knows where he keeps the keys to that location. It takes a bit of time, but the Furies do start to calm down and eventually accept Athena's offer. The play ends with a chorus of Athenian women singing a prayer to the Furies, and a prayer that Athens will continue to be a city of peace. of this play is best in the context of the trilogy as a whole, there is one thing to discuss that really stands on its own. The Greek name for the Furies is Therinyes. They are the angry ones. 
but that's not the title of this play. The title of this play, as you are well aware, is The Humanities, which translates to The Kindly Ones. Now, this is in part one of those epithets that's used to increase the chances that a vengeful god will be merciful. I mean, this is a lovely city you have here. It would be a shame if something happened to it. Oh, yes, kind ladies, you are so merciful not to destroy our city. But we also see a change in the Furies in the Exodus. Their power as angry ones has been diminished. And as long as the worship of them continues at their new temple on the Acropolis, they agree to be kindly ones instead. Which leads us into the themes that play through the entire Oresteia. Some of these we have looked at briefly in regards to Agamemnon and the libation bearers, and some are new. The first is justice replacing vengeance. In Agamemnon, Clytemnestra's murder of Agamemnon is justice for his murder of Iphigenia. It is vengeance, but justice and vengeance are one and the same. At the beginning of the libation bearers, this is also true. Orestes killing Clytemnestra is vengeance, but it is the only way to seek justice for Agamemnon's murder. But when the Furies appear to Orestes at the end of the Libation Bearers, we see a shift. And all of the humanities, as we have just seen in the summary, is focused on the difference between justice and vengeance. And that transition from the latter to the former is the preferred response to a murder. Orestes has been punished by the Furies. No one needs to kill him to avenge his murder of Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. Vengeance is no longer the same thing as justice. A second theme that arises at the end of this trilogy is the concept of democracy. The first two plays are all about birthright and kingship, rule by blood. The end, a trial by a jury of citizens, is a transition from monarchy to democracy. No individual was able to cleanse Orestes of the blood of his mother's murder. It takes a group of ordinary people, which of course means men of property of a certain age, not everyone, to free him to return home. We also see a transition in theology. The Furies are old gods. They existed before Zeus and his Olympians were born. And their power is overthrown by Athena, an Olympian god and the daughter of Zeus. We see a change in the values the old gods stand for to the values the new gods stand for. The people will still worship the Furies, but only if they become the Eumenides. And finally, of course, we should look at the role of women in this play. There is a primary chorus and a secondary chorus, all of whom are women. It is Athena, who can be problematic in her relationships with women, but that's too much to get into within this lecture. It is Athena who leads the changes discussed in this this, um, lecture. As in the earlier plays, none of the individual women are necessarily complex characters, but put together, we see all aspects of humanity in them. What do you think? The link to the blog is in the show notes. Come join the discussion there. On Wednesday, we'll look at book two of the Iliad, and next Monday is a comedy week, and we'll read Aristophanes' piece. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.